wondering, why did I come here? Why am I sitting here listening to whatever is being said? That's what it's about. Because knowing Jesus will change everything about you. We're going to see that play out as we go through John in the lives of some some real-life examples. Uh, Many of you have experienced that in your own lives. Knowing Jesus will change everything about you. Some time ago, my friend, uh, a friend of mine, asked me about marriage. Um, you know, he said something like this: ah, "You and Brandy, you know, you've been married for a while. You seem to like each other. Seems to be going okay. Your kids are mostly likable enough. So, like, what's your secret?" I was like, "Wow, you should raise the bar if that's like all it's about. Is you know, you seem to like each other, and your kids are likable enough. Uh, raise the bar. Life can be better than that. But uh, what's your secret?" And so I said, "Well, you know, our faith really is like at the center of that. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say." both instructively and descriptively, prescriptively and descriptively. We see examples of how to live in marriage. The Bible, of course, teaches us that marriage in this life, if it's operating ideally, is sort of like a dim reflection of what our relationship to God will be in heaven. And, uh, and of course, the Bible gives us some instructions. And so, so that's really what we've tried to center it around, trying to have a Christ-like marriage. I'm trying to be a Christ-like husband. And he said, okay. So what does it say? How do you do that? I was like, well, for example, it says that I as a husband should give myself up for my wife. And that Jesus is our example, the way he gave himself up for the church. Like, that's one example. He's like, oh, that's good. Okay, what else? Okay, well, it says that, um, you know, I should nurture my family toward Jesus, toward Jesus as their Savior, not not, uh, not lead my family in a way that kind of demands respect and keeps everything in its order, but, but nurture them toward Christ. Point them toward Jesus. Oh, that makes sense. How do I do that? Series of questions, on, on and on. Long, long sequence of questions. So finally, I just said, listen, um, it's really not about me telling you a list of to-dos and not to-dos. Um, that's actually not as helpful as you would think. Now, if you've ever tried to follow God as a list of, I can do that and I can't do that, you probably already know that's not a very effective way to have a life-giving relationship with God. The best thing you can do, friend, is to know Jesus through the scriptures. And as you go through life with him as your mentor, what will happen is you'll take on his character. You'll begin to think like him. You'll begin to live like him. My point is, it's just one of a million ways. Marriage is just one of a million examples of how knowing Jesus will change everything about you. And so as we journey through John, we're going to see that happen to people. We're going to experience that happening in our own lives. So do this with me. Think of a person, a historical figure, could be somebody still alive, maybe not, who you consider to be great. Um, Someone that you're like, man, they are like, just historically speaking, that person is just a giant. You would give them the label great. It would be really funny to just go around the room and see who everyone's examples are, because that would probably tell us a lot about our disposition. Uh, One of the people I'm a big fan of is a guy named Martin Luther. Uh, Not MLK, although he was amazing too. Uh, Martin Luther was a 16th century reformer who, he, he basically took his life in his own hands to confront the corruption of what was at that time the state run Catholic Church. Any time in history that government has run the church or vice versa, it's been bad news. Uh, and so at that time, the Bible wasn't translated into the common language of the day. It only really existed in the original language, Greek, uh, Greek and Hebrew, and then Latin. Latin was kind of a common language of the day uh, uh, shortly after the life of Christ. And so it was translated into Latin. But 
in Europe 400 years ago, uh, they didn't speak Latin. German existed, relatively modern German, relatively modern English language existed. So people, we didn't have the Bible. Only the state-run church had the scriptures. And so, uh, as you can imagine, it became very manipulative, and he basically took his life in his own hands to confront that corruption. And because of him and other people who came along with him, uh, we can read the Bible for ourselves. We're not dependent on someone else to tell us what it says. We have full access to it. Uh, so for me, that's somebody that I think of. That's kind of nerdy. That's kind of in my lane. Uh, but maybe for you, it's like a former president or a civil rights leader or a liberator uh, or maybe somebody like Mother Teresa who basically, you know, she basically gave up her life uh, for the benefit of others. But here's the thing. There's really no sensible argument against the idea that Jesus is the most influential person that's ever lived. Think about this. Time magazine at the end of the 1900s, they named him the man of the millennium. He had been gone for over 900 years when that millennium started, and he was still the most influential person of that millennium. Like, that's pretty remarkable, pretty incredible stuff. We have divided our history, the history of humanity, in two, the time before him and the time after Jesus. So, like, I know that, like, LeBron is pretty amazing, made a game-winning shot last night, and Elvis was, like, a big deal if you're a little bit older, but not really. Not really. Jesus is by far the most influential person ever. And there's one person who he said that up until him was the greatest person who ever lived, that Jesus called the greatest person who's ever lived. In Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Speaking of John the Baptist. John the Beloved is the author of our book, but John the Baptist is who Jesus calls the greatest person who's ever lived. It's pretty high praise coming from Jesus, right? The man of the millennium and the millennium before that. And it's amazing because I'm pretty sure he didn't know how to throw football. He never made anything great again. The only dunking he did was like dunking people underwater. Thank you for laughing at that. Um, I told Rick this morning, I said, I'm going to cut our church off from decaf. You are not allowed to drink decaf, okay? I want you all drinking the hard stuff before you come to church on Sunday from here on out. From here on out. Um, the, the craziest thing I ever heard somebody yell in church, okay, get the occasional like, amen, whatever. Um, so one time, I don't even remember what I was talking about. I just know this guy in the back was like, hell yeah, <laughs> like fist pumping everything. And I was like, thank you, brother. So if you need to let that out, I will take a humble beginning today. All right? No more decaf for you. Um, John the Baptist didn't do any of the things that we would think are cool, right? He, he didn't do anything that would make him impressive by today's standards. Okay, so we're going to look at this section of scripture. We're actually going to go all the way to the end of chapter one. I know what you're thinking. You're like, dang, you've been talking for like eight minutes already, and we're going to do the whole rest of the chapter, and it took us three weeks to get the first six paragraphs. Don't worry. We're going to make it. Uh, it will still be Bloomsday when we're done, I promise. This interaction that we're going to see, there's actually two of them, uh, it's going to happen over the course of four days. We're going to just bite this off in actually two big chunks. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, you can open to John chapter 1, or if you have a fake Bible on your phone, it's just as good. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, uh, I'm going to read to verse 28. This is what it says. Now this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem set, sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. They did not, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, John the Baptist, then who are you? 
Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie." This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, so here's what we know about John the Baptist. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, he actually tells us a little bit more detail about John, John the Baptist. Uh, we gain some additional information. First of all, we know he's a rabbi. Now, the rabbi is um, uh, it's a title for someone who's a teacher. The, the word actually means something like, my good sir. It's like a, a term of honor. Um, or maybe similar to like how we call a judge, your honor. It kind of means something similar to that. It's a title for someone who is a Jewish teacher. So John's a teacher. He lives out in a rural area. He's the voice of one calling in the wilderness. And his clothes are made of camel's fur, which must have been uncommon back then. Otherwise, it wouldn't really be noteworthy. Uh, so he wears these unusual clothing. He eats weird food. Uh, locusts and honey, we're told, is his diet. And he's bringing this message that no one has ever heard before. And all of that is why I say John the Baptist is the original Christian hipster. Because he's doing his own thing, and he kind of makes it sound cool. He's got his own style. I don't know if he actually was cool. I just think he kind of meets the basic criteria of being a hipster. Um, he's out there. He's doing his own thing. Now, Matthew tells us that people started flocking out of the city to, to hear him, to see what he would say because he spoke with such authority. When Luke describes John the Baptist, he says that a young John the Baptist grew in strength and grew strong in the spirit of God. Okay, so, so he's kind of an outlier. He's, he's a little bit of an outlaw cowboy. He's not part of the establishment. Uh, he's kind of got his own style. He's just out in the country yelling at people about their need to repent, and the people are loving it. They're, they're coming out to hear in droves. Now, here's why he's significant. About 700 years before John, there was a guy named Isaiah. He was a prophet, and we know he's a prophet because we can go right down the list and see how all of the things he foretold were fulfilled in Christ. So it's very easy to tell that he was right in his prophecies. Uh, Isaiah lived from about 740 B.C. to about 681 B.C., so roughly 700 years before Christ. And he said that, that when the Messiah comes, right before that, there's going to be a forerunner. And, and this is the person who's going to announce the coming of the Savior, the arrival of the Messiah. He said that there would be, Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, what does John the Baptist say 700 years later? I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's me. Just as an interesting side note, um, John the Baptist is actually related to Jesus. Uh, we don't know exactly how, but what we know from Scripture is that uh, their mothers were somehow related, and then we also see later on um, that they're referred to as cousins, is their relationship. So, so their moms were likely either sisters, or I guess their moms probably could have theoretically been cousins, so they're you know, cousins a little farther removed 
second, third cousin, something like that. But they're, they're related in that way somehow. So there's a whole bunch of interesting things to know about John. I just want to focus on one, okay? Because we do have to leave at some point today. He's got all this popularity. Just think about his position, okay? He's trending right now. John's a big deal. And uh, people, are, people are coming out to hear what he has to say. People are, are sort of flocking out of town. And uh, he has these leaders, these religious leaders. Uh, think of their religious leaders as kind of all-encompassing because their religious leaders were also their civic leaders. So it would be like if we had a religious authority over all of the Christians in Spokane, and they were also the mayor and the city council and the police department. Um, so it's kind of all in one. It's, it's kind of a wonky situation that was happening at the time. But they're coming out to hear John, and they are all too ready to announce that he's the Savior. Like, they want to make him the guy. They're, they're coming out asking, are you, the, are you the Messiah? No, no, I'm not the Messiah. Uh, do you want to be president? You want to just be like our, our national celebrity? You want to be just our national hero? No, no, that's not me. I don't, I don't want that. And it's crazy because he hasn't gone through the establishment, Okay. So this group of people is coming out. They want to make him their leader. This, this group of like Pharisees and Sadducees, you could think of them in the modern day as sort of upper class, maybe Ivy League, uh, educated, very entitled, always been the cool kids, always been the insiders, and they're ready to just make John their leader. Like they're, they're ready to go for it. But John's just an outlier. He's just a normal guy, grew up in Chihuahua, just out there doing his own thing. Oh, you'll laugh about Chihuahua. That's hurtful. But he's also filled with a passion for God. Just kidding. I like making fun of people from Chihuahua. No one's from here. They're right. He's filled with this passion for God. He's filled with the power of God's spirit. And he just posts up out in the wilderness, starts yelling at people, repent. The kingdom is at hand. And these leaders come out, and they want to know what's going on. The establishment sends their guys to investigate. They show up and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you a prophet from God? Are you Elijah? Elijah was a prophet who they believed would physically return from heaven. Uh, now think about that situation, okay? He's a big deal. People want to make him their leader. How would you respond to that situation? How would... Uh, somebody else respond, not you, because you're, you know, you're wise and humble. How would someone else respond to that situation? You want to be the president of the company? You want to be the president of the country? Do you want to be like the coolest kid there is that everyone flocks to and adores? Well, I don't know. How much does it pay? Maybe I am. I don't know. Most of us might want to investigate that a little farther and see, see where it goes. But John says, no. Opportunity of a lifetime, right there. He can go from poor to rich. He can go from obscure to famous. Opportunity of a lifetime. And John, John says, no, that's not me. He humbles himself. He points people to Jesus, and he submits to God's will. That's the key to John's greatness. That's why John is great. It takes a lot of humility to know who you are and be good with it. Um, that's one of the things that we discover as we get older. We figure out who we are, who we're not. We become a little more comfortable with it. But it takes some humility. And he has this great opportunity. And he says, no, that's me. But, but let me point you to the one who is all of that. What ultimately makes John the Baptist great, 
you got to get this. this. This might be worth writing down. What ultimately makes him great is his humility and his submission to God's will. Because of all of that, Jesus says, that guy, greatest person who's ever lived. That's pretty high praise. If I can be one thing, I would love to, I would love to wear that title. But just think about the fact that if John has one ounce of self-service in him, that legacy is gone. Just, just the slightest little bit of self-service, and that legacy is gone. Humility is not a high value in our society. Here's what I'm realizing. If I'm going to be great in God's kingdom, I'm going to need a different set of values. That's, that's just a reality, because we don't value humility. Now, uh, that just might be something to think about in your own life. The greatest person who ever lived said these words, Christ must increase, I must decrease. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing that great people say. Um, sadly, I wish that I had made this uh, observation so that I could share it with you, but I actually heard it from somebody else. Uh, very few people are going to go down in history as great because of what they did. Uh, there's not going to be another George Washington. There's not going to be another Rosa Parks. Very few people are going to go down in history because of what they accomplished, what they did. For most of us, our greatness will not be found in what we do, but in who we do it for. Your greatness will not be found in what you do. Your greatness is in who you do it for. Jesus gave a good example of this in Matthew 18. He used a child as a reference, and he said, the person who chooses a lowly position, who chooses to be a servant, that person will be called the greatest in the kingdom of God. Our greatness is not going to be found in what we do, but in who we do it for. It's not an accomplishment. Uh, there will be a day when no one cares how green my lawn is. No one cares how well prepared I was for every scenario. No one will care. Greatness will not be found in accomplishment, but in who you do it for. All right. So that was the first section. We took that bite. It was like 12 minutes. We nailed it. The next section uh, is actually really, really fascinating uh, to me personally. In your Bible, there's probably a heading over verse 35 that says something like this. In my Bible, it says, Jesus' first disciples. In yours, it might say that, or it might say the calling of the first disciples. Now, that, that was put in there by uh, the translator just to basically help us find the different sections. As we're looking around, we can look at those headings and see what's happening in this section that we're about to read. But they're not part of the text, right? I think that's obvious. I think we probably uh, all, all know that. But what's interesting is, if you went through the other Gospels, you would probably find that same heading or one really similar to it uh, in other books. And then if you read that section, you would see that Jesus has a completely different interaction with his disciples. Uh, now, some people will point to that and say, oh, see, the Bible's not true. It's inconsistent. Here's what I'd say to that. If it's a different group of people having a different conversation at a different time in a different place, is it the same interaction? No. It's a totally different interaction. If I told you a story about Pastor Rick and I going to Red Robin, and then I told you another story about Pastor Rick and I going to a Seahawks game, you wouldn't be like, oh, what's the deal? Your story's inconsistent. Well, no, we went both of those places. They're different places. But that little heading that's in there, it creates confusion. So this particular one, chronologically, is really at a very early stage. It's a really early interaction uh, with Jesus, between Jesus and uh, the men who would eventually be his first disciples. So I just want to read this from John chapter 1, verse 35. It says, the next day, so we're on to the third day, 
The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour, which is uh, 4 o'clock p.m. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Uh, Cephas in Aramaic, uh, Peter in Greek, both of those words mean rock. It's kind of a weird interaction, right? Jesus meets Peter. Hey, how you doing? Good. My name's Peter. No, it's not. That's a really strange situation. I just, I don't know why. Sometimes the Bible is funny, but uh, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Chewila, can anything good come from there? Uh, this is like, uh, if you've ever, okay, I, I lived in Montana when I was a kid. And when you're driving through Montana, there's a lot of empty space. There's pretty much all empty space, actually, except periodically, you'll come back through a little town, and pretty much the only thing they have there is like a bathroom, a um, place where you can get a Diet Pepsi, and get the bugs off your windshield. Right? That's like their, their whole economy is built around those three things, and it takes about half a second to drive past the entire town. That's basically where Nazareth is. It's just out in the middle of nowhere. If people didn't need to stop and water their donkey, it probably wouldn't even exist. Nazareth, can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked? Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus essentially tells Nathaniel something about himself that there's no way Jesus could have known because he wasn't there. I saw you when you were sitting under that tree before Philip found you and brought you to me. And so Nathaniel believes. The last part is, is kind of, just this is just an aside, the last part where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, it's kind of an unusual thing to say. Uh, it's actually a reference to a story in the Old Testament. Many of you know it. We refer to it as Jacob's Ladder. Uh, when I read it right there, I kind of think like ascending and descending on the Son of Man, like angels fall out of the sky and land on Jesus and then they go back up. That's really not what he's saying. He's describing himself as the ladder between heaven and earth. Makes a lot more sense in that context 
Um, so that's just, that's just parenthetical. That's, that's just the end. Um, just something for you to know. Okay, so we talked about historical heroes. Now I want you to think of something personal, a personal hero. Somebody who maybe wasn't great historically, but somebody who's been great in your life. Somebody who's really made a difference for you. Uh, chances are most of us have a number of those people who've been really significant in our lives. Uh, for me, uh, there's been a whole bunch of them, uh, but I remember one guy when I was a teenager, um, I loved this particular type of music that was highly frowned upon in evangelical Christianity. Uh, I grew up at a time when it was said that the electric guitar is the devil's tool, and it probably was, but really just about anything can be the devil's tool when, uh, when it's used for that purpose, right? Uh, they probably weren't wrong in that regard. Uh, but... I just loved like really progressive rock music. I was just really into it. And um, there was this guy in my church who I thought was an old guy. He was probably like in his late 20s. Uh, <laughs> but you know, when you're 16, everything past like 22 is ancient. So, uh, But he played the guitar. He was awesome at it. And uh, he loved the guitar. He loved the same kind of music I did. And we had similar interests. Um, he had a worn-out Bible. He had an awesome wife who also loved Jesus. And I just looked at that situation. And I said, all of those are things that I am interested in and would like to have myself someday. I need to find out what that guy knows. So, you know, if you're a single dude here, right? Got a couple of handsome single dudes right here. You see an old guy with a beat-up Bible and a wife who loves Jesus, you need to find out what he knows, all right? So, uh, but not too soon, right? You got a ways to go. Um, so I decided I'm just... I'm, Start a conversation with this guy. Now, I could tell he probably wasn't planning on a teenager coming up and starting dialogue with him because he didn't really seem to know how to respond to my conversations. Um, but what he eventually said was, you know what, man? I got a whole bunch of guitars and drums and stuff in my house. I got uh, my awesome wife who loves Jesus, also loves to cook. Why don't you just come over to my house and we'll jam and we'll eat some food together? And so that, was, that led to the first of what was eventually many jam sessions, and food eating together. And I can tell you that today, 20 plus years later, I know Jesus better because of those interactions than I would have otherwise. All he said to me was, come and see. I don't know, come and see. There's another guy that I worked with a few years later. His name was Jim. I know what you're thinking. That sounds pretty generic. Yeah, well, that was his name. Um, and uh, Jim was, you know, I'm like 21 years old, 22 years old maybe, and uh, Jim's like around 30-ish, and he's married, they have, they have a couple of little girls, and um, Jim was aware of the fact that his marriage wasn't everything that it could be. I mean, it wasn't like in danger, it wasn't exploding, but, but it wasn't what he dreamed that it could be. Now, uh, we had become friends, we'd gotten to know each other, he kind of figured out that I was a Christian, and uh, the thing you got to know about Jim that sheds a lot more light on his situation is that um, he never had a relationship with his dad, his dad was never in his life, uh, and he was basically on his own, self-sufficient from the time he was like 16, 17 years old. So he just didn't really have a role model, uh, anybody to look at and say, okay, this is how I'm, I'm going to do it. So for some reason, I became his role model. Does that sound like terrifying to anyone else, especially at that stage of my life? Even now, but especially at that stage of my life, because at that point, I'd been married for like literally three weeks, and I had no children. Uh, but what he knew about me was uh, my upbringing was totally different. Because if there's one thing I've never wondered about in my life, it's whether or not my dad loved me. Uh, if that's true for you, I, I bet you're thankful for that. And uh, I still didn't have any idea of how to be a husband or how to raise kids, but, but compared to Jim, I guess maybe I did. 
Um, so, so we would have these dialogues about marriage and family, and finally I just said, you know what? I have no idea. I, I don't know any better than you do. I am clearly not the expert in this. So you know what? Why don't we just, let's just ask God to help us. Let's just look at the Bible and, and see maybe what it says, and then we'll just hold each other accountable to be as good at this as we possibly can be. I don't know, but, but let's just go figure it out together. And what, what would happen if you asked Jim today? I promise you he would tell you that that two years we spent together at work changed his life forever, altered the trajectory of his life drastically. What did I do that was so profound? Well, nothing. I just said, come on, let's go figure it out. Uh, I, think, I think any of us has that capacity. All I said was, come and see. I'm going to open up my life to you. You open up yours to me. Come and see. Let's go, let's go figure that out. What we see here in the text is that same kind of thing happening. There's basically three different ways that people come to know Jesus. You got Nathaniel who knows Jesus through a miracle. Uh, that does happen to some people. I know people that's happened to. God just showed up and did a, a strange, unforeseen thing in their heart, and they were never the same. Most of us don't come to Jesus in that way. Most of us come to Jesus the way that the others did. Think about it. John the Baptist points his disciples toward Jesus. Maybe you came to Jesus because somebody you knew and loved pointed you towards him. They got there, they got there first. Maybe it was your grandma. Maybe she drug you to church. Uh, and you thought, oh, this is so boring. This will never be over. And then here you are 40 years later loving Jesus. Guess it was a complete waste of time. Somebody you knew and loved got there first. And they said, you know what? Come and see. A lot of people come to Jesus that way. Some people come along with someone. Someone says, I don't know. Come and see. Come with me. Let's, let's go figure that out. Maybe, maybe that was somebody at your job who just invited you to come to their church, and you said no, but then they asked again and again, and finally you felt obligated, so you went, and God did something. What a waste of time, right? Maybe you found Jesus in that way. Um, maybe they just they couldn't tell you, but all they could do was let you in, and God worked through that. That's that's pretty, pretty common. Now, here's what I want to say. For most of us, okay, Lindsay was a great example of this this morning because she didn't like taking the microphone. Most of us won't stand up in front like John the Baptist and yell at people about Jesus and have them be like, I do need to have my soul reconciled to the God of the universe. That's not going to happen. The overwhelming majority of ministry that we will do in our lifetimes to other people is come and see ministry. The overwhelming majority will be you and I inviting other people, inviting each other, come and see. I don't know. Let's go together. Let's figure it out. Okay? That's the overwhelming ministry that we will see. If you can be good at anything, be good at come and see ministry. Be the best version of yourself. Okay? Now, you don't have to take your John journal to school and like recite your notes to people, although if you want to do that, it'll probably make you weird, but it'd still be kind of cool. You don't have to do that, but maybe... You bring somebody with you to the next Awesome Fest. Come and see. Come figure it out. You don't have to, uh, I mean, it would be really weird, like some of you guys go to Aero Fitness, Dennis's gym. It'd be really weird if he started like playing his audio Bible during the workouts instead of music. That'd be weird. Don't do that. But he could go out to lunch with someone. You could go out to lunch with someone. You could play golf with someone. You could invite someone to your church, and then when they say no, you can invite them again, right? Um, there's all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of ways, but the most effective ministry you will do will probably be come and see ministry, is my point. Okay, so I just want to finish off our time by telling you a little bit about Andrew. 
Okay, there's, there's six disciples here in this first section that, that uh, originally followed Jesus. Um, they all have a bunch of different information, and we'll explore their lives. Uh, history tells us a lot about most of them uh, as we go. But today, I just want to tell you a few things about Andrew specifically. Andrew was a fisherman, okay? His name literally means manly. Like, how awesome is that? Uh, Andrew's like my new favorite disciple, because uh, I, I know you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I can see why, because you are really manly. I know that's what you're thinking. You know, his name literally means, means manly, and he has a manly occupation. Why are you laughing at that, Dan? <laughs> uh, he has this really manly occupation. He's a fisherman. Uh, he works with two brothers named James and John, and he also works with his brother, Cephas, or Peter. Uh, he got his name changed. Okay, so he works with James and John and Peter. They work together in this really manly occupation. Uh, now, as the story plays out, as a lot of you will know uh, already, Peter is going to be the one who gets most of the attention, right? Sort of unfair, because Andrew went and found Peter. You know, maybe at some point he was like, hey, I'm the one that brought you into this. Why are you getting all the attention? But that's how it's going to play out. Peter's outgoing. He's assertive. He makes a lot of noise. Uh, sometimes he probably should have dialed it back, but he doesn't find out until it's too late. Peter is out there. He's, he's aggressive. What's really interesting is we're going to see that Peter, James, and John, the other three guys, they actually become Jesus' inner circle. Uh, Jesus has his 12, but he's got, he's got these three guys that he's most relationally connected to. And so, uh, so John kind of ends up, so Andrea kind of ends up like um, in fourth place, Right? like the Olympics. You don't want to be the guy that finishes in fourth place. Wouldn't you rather finish in 20th than fourth in the Olympics? It's like that times a thousand. That's, that's Andrew. Peter's loud and outgoing, but Andrew is a humble influencer. He's, he's not that guy. He doesn't go to Peter and tell him everything he knows. He says, hey, we found the Messiah. Come and see. He's a humble influencer, okay? Most of you won't identify with Peter. A few of you will, but most of us won't identify with Peter. We're more like Andrew. And if that's you, it's better to be Andrew. Peter gets attention, but Andrew's effective. Andrew's used of God. Andrew's an influencer. Andrew's humble. He's not up front yelling at people, but he's relational. He connects people. He serves others. Andrew's just a normal person. He's not loud. He's not forceful. He's not knocking people down. He's a quiet, normal guy who's passionate about Jesus. And the truth is, that actually sounds like a pretty good life. He's a normal guy who loves Jesus. That's, that's a great life right there. We celebrate loud and forceful, but that's not Andrew. So Andrew decides, I'm following Jesus all the way. I'm going the distance with Jesus. So I just want to tell you uh, just a few facts about what God ended up doing through this quiet, normal guy who decided that he was going to follow Jesus all the way. History tells us that Andrew went on to teach the gospel, uh, to establish churches, establish faith communities for about 20 years. His, his personal ministry was about 20 years long. And history tells us that he actually made it, you know, if, you, if you have a good mental map, some of you will, uh, he made it from Jerusalem in this community where he started all the way to what is now today modern-day Russia, that's a long ways with no car, uh, no train, no airplane. That's a long ways. It's a long ways with a car, a train, or an airplane. But over that 20 years, his, 
ministry, his missionary journey took him all that distance. That's why if you were to go to that part of the world right now, um, uh, Eastern, what is Eastern Europe, Western Asia, if you went to that part of the world right now, what you would find is their patron saint is Andrew. This guy, this Andrew, he traveled all that distance. Now, today, 1900 plus years later, they still recognize him as the founding father of their church. He's really a big deal. Andrew, like thousands of other early Christians, uh, was persecuted and eventually executed because of his faith in Jesus by the Romans, who, uh, who made really crazy efforts to stamp out Christianity. And history tells us that he was actually tied to a cross. He wasn't nailed to one like Jesus, okay? So this is like Jesus' cross, right? Like that one up there on the wall. Uh, Andrew's cross looked like this. This is the Scottish flag, and that on the Scottish flag is Andrew's cross. That's St. Andrew's cross is what it's referred to as to this day, to pay homage to this Andrew. How, how crazy is that? The town in Scotland, St. Andrew's, home of one of the oldest universities in the world, is named as such, St. Andrew's, because it's believed to have harbored St. Andrew's relics. My point is this. The facts aren't really that important. Quiet, normal Andrew went on to impact, by now, millions and millions of people, all because of an encounter with Jesus. All because he got to know Jesus. Meeting Jesus changes people. You'll never know how meeting Jesus is going to change your life, how it's going to change the life of someone you know. But people who come into relationship with Jesus and decide, I'm following you all the way, he changes everything. He does new things. Knowing Jesus will change everything about you. That, that is the big idea. It will become the lens through which you view the world. So here's my exhortation to you. Uh, we're going to go through John. We're going to get all the way to the end of it. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I don't really have this picture in mind of, like, trying to, like, hit the home run and get to the one thing that's going to make the biggest difference. What will happen is we'll have a journey. We'll have a marathon. Day by day, week by week, we'll grow in Christ. Okay? It's, it's, a, it's a lengthy journey. And as we open that door to Jesus, he'll do new things. As we open the door to him, slowly but surely, he will begin to mature us. That's, that's how he historically almost always works. So I want to give you this encouragement to open the door to him farther. Open the door to what God wants to do in your life. Open the door to the possibility that he might want to do something new in your life this week, this year. God might want you to be in a totally different space a year from now than you are, and we're slowly on that journey. If Jesus, think about it this way, if Jesus had showed up this first day and said, uh, hey, I'm going to go water skiing without a boat, I'm going to be crucified, and then you know, all these years later, there's going to be a whole record industry built around singing songs about me. Uh, that would have been like a lot to offload onto the disciples day one, right? But he walked with them day by day, slowly but surely. It's the same way he works in our lives. So we're going to see Jesus do new things in the disciples' lives as we go. And I hope you'll have the expectation that he's going to do new things in yours. I hope you'll have that expectation. Let me pray for you.